Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Global Geek News Podcast. This is episode number 52 of the Global Geek News Podcast. As always, I am your host, Jeremy Bray, alongside my sleeping cat, because Wesley's out sick this week. Uh, for those of you who were wondering where our new intro is, well, it kind of needs the both of us, so there is no new intro yet this week. But since Wesley's out sick this week, and I couldn't find anybody to really fill in on such short notice, and the recording kind of got pushed back a couple extra days anyway, I am doing the show solo this week. For those of you who've been listening to the show for a couple of years, you kind of have an idea of what the so- what what the show is like with me doing it solo, but I like to think that it, I've gotten a whole lot better at it than what I used to be. So, anyway, I and since I don't have a co-host, I figured, well, just being me, the show would be kind of short. So to make up for that, I really loaded us up with with stories this week, and some tips of the week and stuff like that. So, we have... I still got a full show today, even without Wesley. So, might as well go ahead and clear up a couple of things before we get on to the stories. First things first, don't forget to check out the show notes at globalgeeknews.com. If, like I said, we've got plenty of stories, so if you want to really read the stories, dig into them a little bit deeper, you can check those out at globalgeeknews.com. Don't forget to check out the Global Geek News blog which is globalgeeknews.com slash blog. I've done a number of posts there in the past week. Also, for anybody looking for Blippi invites, uh, there's a post on the Global Geek News blog where if you want invites, stick your email or whatever in the comments, and I will send you one. Last time I checked, I've got like 20-some-odd Blippi invites which, for those that don't know, Blippi is basically like a friend feed, but for purchases instead of content that you produce online. So basically, whenever you make a purchase from, say, iTunes or Amazon, or you get something new from Netflix or whatever, basically all that stuff gets aggregated in one place, kind of like friend feed, and then you can have discussions about those things with the people that follow you and the people you follow, stuff like that, basically like friend feed. And I believe there's even things where you can hook it into like credit cards and your bank account and stuff, but that's limited in like the number of banks that you can use for stuff like that. And there's just a bunch of different services that are, they can um, work with and everything. And it's actually pretty neat to kind of see what other people are purchasing. And you really get to know a person a whole lot better when you kind of know what kind of music they like, what kind of movies they like, what kind of um, DVDs are buying from Amazon or stuff like that. But And, of course, you don't have to necessarily contribute everything. You can even set it as to where whenever you make a purchase or whatever, it's got to clear it through you before it gets posted as to where everybody can see it. So if you're kind of concerned about your privacy or you're not sure if you always necessarily want to share everything, that might be the route to go. But anyway, right now I believe the service is still in beta and it will be for a little bit yet. So if you need a invite to the beta, which I believe it's still a closed beta, I've got, uh, well, let me double check. I think I've got 20, like 23, 26 some odd invites left, which I've given away, I don't know, probably about 20 or so in the last week, which it looks like I have 25 right now. So if anybody would like any of those... Um, find the story, search on the blog for it. It should still be on the main page. And 
stick your email or whatever in the comments, and I will get one to you as quick as I can, which normally that's within a few minutes or whatever. But anyway, like I said, there's been a number of other posts on the blog this week, for those of you that are kind of a little curious but don't necessarily feel like going and checking it out. Um, I basically talk a little bit about Microsoft's CES keynote and how it was a little on the boring side. There wasn't a whole lot to it. Um, I talked a little bit about the Xbox Live Game Room, which was announced during the keynote. And one of the things that kind of I found a little on the bizarre side was both for the Game Room um, trailer and the Halo Reach trailer, they wouldn't allow it to be streamed for intellectual property right reasons or whatever on the CES stream, which is kind of strange. But I did manage to get my hands on the Game Room trailer, and I did post it on the blog. So for those of you that want to check it out, it's pretty cool looking, basically like an old, uh, virtual old school arcade room, or a great big arcade where you can buy old arcades and play them with friends and stuff. So you're talking games like Pac-Man and Galaga, those kind of arcade games. So that's pretty cool. Don't forget to check that out, like I said, on the blog. And I also did like a live blog of the Microsoft Keynote, and there's been a couple of other things. One of the one of the big ones last week was Netflix driving their customers essentially to piracy by delaying new releases. Like they came up to with an agreement with Warner Brothers where they would uh, delay the release of new DVDs, Blu-rays, or whatever, just any movies from Warner Brothers for 28 days in exchange for having a larger um, number of videos that will be allowed to be streamed, basically more of the back catalog to be allowed to be streamed on the Netflix streaming service, whether it's through uh, an Xbox 360 or on your computer or what is it, with a Roku box or something like that. Basically, in the end, it just kind of rubbed me the wrong way, and it's basically screwing a lot of consumers. So if to check out the whole story, don't forget to check out that on the blog, globalgeeknews.com slash blog, or you can just go to globalgeeknews.com and hit the blog button. And I guess that's pretty much it as far as that goes, so let's go ahead and jump right into the stories, because like I that we probably got like 50% more stories than usual. So let's go ahead and start off with the first story, which is according to whatever judges, the judges in the trial, real networks pretty much caused its own legal problems. So for those of you that haven't been keeping up, or I believe, and I know we've talked about it on the show a couple of times before, real networks basically made some software, which I guess they were calling real DVD, but sometimes referring to it as steel DVD, or basically it would allow you to rip a bit-for-bit copy of any movie or whatever that you happen to get onto your computer, maintaining all of the DRM and stuff. Well, the MPA, of course, didn't like this, so they took them to court. Real networks turned around and countersued them, and it's basically been a big thing that's gone on for the past, I don't know, year or more, where basically this basically um, breaks the DMCA because it's making a copy of it despite the fact that it's keeping the DRM intact and so there's been an injunction against it as to where they've never been able to actually come out with this software It's I mean they've got it, they just can't come out with it because the judge won't let them and now the judge is pretty much saying well it's kind of their own stupid fault for making illegal software but to be honest I really don't think it's necessarily about that, I think it's 
more about the fact that the movie industry isn't really getting their cut from it. I think if real networks had come to the movie industry right away and said, hey, we've got this idea for ripping DVDs, and you could still have all your DRM and everything on there that you want, and pitched it to them that way, I think they probably would have been more open to it, and we could have possibly seen the software, but instead, they just went went ahead and said, oh, hey, we have this software, it does this, but it's still ripping stuff, or it's still ripping the movies and stuff, it's still got your DRM, but um, it's still ripping it. So, of course, the movie industry didn't care too much for that. Well, and then Real Network's decided to say, hey, this is an antitrust thing, they're kind of all ganging up on us. Well, that's because they kind of went about things the wrong way, So, and the judge pretty much agreed, saying that they caused their own legal problems and pretty much just shot themselves in the foot with the way they went about this. So now they've got a, project, a product they've spent who knows how many man-hours working on and millions of dollars developing that'll never see the light of day. But speaking of copyrights, apparently politicians worldwide are finally starting to ask questions about ACTA, the um, anti-counterfeit trade agreement or whatever. Basically, the we've like we've talked about on the shows in the past, it's basically the treaty that is trying to be that the number of like the MPAA and RIAA and then organizations like that are trying to get signed for anti-piracy efforts basically trying to put in like a global three strikes law or rule and a number of other things in and basically bypassing legislature and stuff from all the different companies or I mean countries excuse me well now they're starting to get to be senators and people in the UK's House of Commons and people in the French government and stuff finally saying hey, wait a minute, this isn't right, and they're starting to finally ask questions about it. So hopefully now that this that there's been a couple of leaks around ACTA and as to where people kind of know what it's about, and they're finally starting to ask their congressmen and stuff, hopefully we'll see more of an effort to try and fight this as to where this won't happen. I think now that there's starting to be some questions asked about it, I have, I'm guessing we probably won't see it go through or at least I certainly hope not. But speaking of piracy, apparently there's a new bill floating around in Great Britain called the Digital Economy Bill, where basically there's going to be um, there's all kinds of different uh, amendments and stuff to it, where there's, I guess there's like 74 amendments to this bill, I guess, all dealing with digital economy. And there's a lot of it that actually has to deal with piracy and stuff like that. Well, part of it is it, when an organization like the... I can't remember the British version of like the RIAA or whatever. If they file a complaint with your ISP saying, hey, this person is infringing stuff, they're basically going to have to equate the piracy to an actual value and say, okay, this is essentially a lost sale for us, even though they're, they can only prove, they can't prove that other people are downloading it from you, they can only prove that they've been able to download it from you, which, how that's a loss when they already own it, I really don't understand that, but then again, that's just kind of the stupidity of the whole issue. 
But anyway, basically they're going to have to say, okay, hey, this is the kind of losses that we're getting from this. So basically, if you're uploading a 99-cent song, they're going to have to say, this, you're sharing a 99-cent song. And there's a number of other things saying that basically an IP, whoever's in charge of an IP address or basically whoever's um, account is linked to an IP address is in, is the one that's going to be held liable for any piracy stuff. So even if you leave your Wi-Fi open or if somebody breaks into your Wi-Fi and just starts pirating all kinds of stuff, you're still going to be held liable. And, and there's basically a whole bunch of other different um, amendments in here. I recommend checking it all out in the show notes, but it's like there's some things that are good. Basically, there's an amendment which should be accepted that basically kind of throws out the idea of the three strikes or throttling customers based on them being caught multiple times for file sharing or whatever. But at the same time, if it's equating the owner of an IP or the owner of an account to an IP address and making them liable, that's not real great. So, I mean, there's a lot to this bill. So, especially if you're living in the UK, you definitely want to check this out. Like I said, the link is in the show notes. But speaking of even more piracy, Breen has apparently shut down 393 torrent sites last year, and no one really noticed. Of course, they did shut down, or well, not completely shut down, Mininova, which was kind of their the big feather in their cap for last year, where Mininova had to go through and delete essentially pretty much all but a handful, and I do mean handful, I'm talking like a couple of dozen torrents off of Mininova after losing their legal battle with them. And this is, of course, after Mininova had served up its 10 billionth torrent. So to go from that many down to a couple of dozen, that's kind of a real big hit. They're essentially pretty much gone. I Actually, I was thinking earlier this evening I'd like to see some traffic numbers from Mininova, because I know we talked about them, about or about their traffic numbers, about a week or so after they had to re- delete all of the torrents, and, of course, like the Pirate Bay has been ordered to do this by, I believe it's like the 10th of March this year, is it the 10th, 10th of March? Uh, Mar- 1st of March, excuse me. But but we talked about the numbers being just how far they dropped in a week. And I'm kind of curious, now that we're a couple months out from that, I'm kind of curious to see what the numbers are. I would be real surprised if they're in like the thousands of hits now. Because I think the word is finally spread around and people are finally realizing they can't find the pirated content that they want on there, so they've gone to the Pirate Bay or Demonoid or Usenet or whatever, which I won't talk about Usenet. We're not allowed to talk about Usenet. For those of you that aren't too sure what I'm talking about, go back a couple of shows when we talked about how you can't talk about Usenet, or technically you can, or at least for right now, but generally the rule about Usenet is that you don't talk about Usenet. Anyway, speaking of torrents and stuff. Um, Like I said, Breen apparently shut down, according to their own numbers, 393 other torrent sites. No one seems to really know what the sites those were, and apparently they also shut down like 35 eDonkey sites, 38 video streaming sites, 14 Usenet portables, or portals, excuse me. And no one seems to really know which sites these are, so I'm guessing they gotta be 
really small sites that no one's probably ever heard of that are prob- that probably just existed among like small groups of friends and stuff like that rather than being something real big like a pirate bay otherwise we would have heard of it but of course when it comes to these torrent sites and stuff you take down one five more pop up in its place so really it's just kind of a losing battle that they're just kind of throwing money at and nothing is really getting done it's just it kind of looks like it because they're going after some of the biggest players like Mini Nova and the Pirate Bay and stuff like that. But speaking of BitTorrent, apparently Microsoft has filed for a patent or received a patent or whatever on basically DRM'd torrents. So apparently it's this new patent, which I haven't really looked at all the specifics of it, but it basically has some sort of a method for encrypting each packet with a separate key and allowing users to decrypt it at different levels of quality based on a license they purchased so they can like stream media through a peer-to-peer network or BitTorrent or whatever which this it seems like kind of a strange area for Microsoft to be getting into and I cannot I'm not real sure how practical that would be considering um when it comes to if you're encrypting each individual packet, and that doesn't, and like I said, I didn't really look into the patent, so I didn't see like how many bit encryption it is on each packet. But if you're doing it each with a separate key, and each packet has to be de- decrypted with a separate key, that's going to be very computationally intensive. I mean, if you're doing it just for if you're doing like encryption over the internet and stuff, and it, it's not that big a deal. But when you're doing each individual packet like that with a separate key and everything, it gets to be a bit much. So I'm not sure when or if we'll ever really see anything come of this, but it's kind of a little scary to know that it's out there, especially considering most things are trying to move away from DRM. Although it it does kind of interest me as far as the levels of quality depending on the licenses you purchase. I don't know, I'm kind of curious to know... Excuse me. Chinese food. Yeah. Anyway, I'm kind of curious to see exactly how that would work and it kind of piques my interest as far as like what would like pricing structures be and stuff like that hopefully nothing will come of that but if so it'll be interesting to find out just kind of how this works and everything which in the story in the show notes there's a link to the patent so if you're bored or whatever there's all kinds of stuff that you can read about anything from like scalable DRM looks like hierarchical DRM uh, DRM-protected media, all kinds of different stuff. So, if you're a little on the board side, knock yourself out. But, now, staying a little bit on the legal track, but moving away from peer-to-peer, apparently a site's terms are terms of service or their legal document or whatever on a site is still enforceable even if the user doesn't read it. Apparently there's uh, a court is up held a practice known as browser wrapping where apparently I guess if you're doing something on the site you don't necessarily that as long as there's a link to a legal document where it's that it's visible that a person can get to it if they do want to look to it or look at it it's basically an, an enforceable policy so apparently this has this came from a case invo- involving uh oh, I'm trying to 
find the person's name. Ah, I guess it really doesn't matter. Some uh, Victoria Major with a service called S- Service Magic, which apparently provides free referrals to screened and approved professionals for all, all manner of home contracting work. Well, apparently she wasn't real happy with the work, so she went and sued the contractor plus Service Magic. And Service Magic basically was able to get it kicked or get the loss the lawsuit dismissed because she filed it in I believe it was Missouri well in the terms of service it said that any legal suits or whatever has to be filed in Denver, Colorado well she was able to get it kicked by that because the court said just because she didn't read that and apparently it was some obscure little line way down there in the terms of service that even though she didn't read it it was still legally enforceable so pretty much you can from the sounds of it you can pretty much put whatever you want in your terms of service and it's enforceable, assuming it's not something completely off the wall. I mean, I, if you if you go and, and this is actually an enjoyable experience, I assure you, go to the globalgeeknews.com slash blog and then go to the, there's a there should be a link, I believe at the top, for our legal page. Check that out. Look at kind of what we have in our legal page, and we throw in some, and I throw in some humor in there too. So I mean, there's some parts that, like the humor parts, that clearly aren't enforceable, but there's other stuff that is. So I think it's basically as long as the particular part of the terms of service is not completely outrageous or whatever, it it's still something valid that the user has to abide by. But Anyway, speaking of the courts slapping people with, or slapping stupid people, actually, that's not really the transition I was looking for. Anyway, the next story. Apparently, the court is kind of unfriendly to the FCC's internet slap against Comcast. For those of you that I'm sure remember, what was it, last year or whatever, back when Kevin Martin was still the head of the FCC, basically told Comcast to knock off its um, Sandvine internet throttling technology, where for anybody that was using services like BitTorrent and stuff, it would be it would send disconnection messages to the people that were seeding or whatever, as basically some network management or whatever, and of course they at the time, of course they wouldn't admit it or anything, well, Comcast has basically kind of cleaned up their act to an extent. I'm still not a big fan of their traffic management strategies now, which I know I've talked about on other shows. But basically, now the court is saying that the FCC had no legal authority to tell Comcast to stop doing what they were doing and come up with something else, which... It seems I always thought it was kind of stupid that Comcast was challenging this anyway. I mean, it's not like they were getting fined or anything. They said that they were working on another technology. Just implement the other technology and drop the stupid situation. But, no, instead they decided to fight the whole thing, I guess just pretty much out of a matter of precedent. And so now the court is finally saying that the FCC, although they have... This is basically kind of an ideal that they were following. They didn't have. There's no legal authority behind it. They couldn't cite any statutes saying, "Yes, we have the authority 
that to enforce stuff like this and that basically <clears throat> ah, excuse me, let me get a drink here. Voice is starting to go on me. Ah, much better. Basically, they just don't have any ground to stand on when it comes to um, enforcing these things that are basically ideals that, rather than actual laws that Congress has given them power to enforce, which is going to make things even more interesting when it comes to the whole uh, net neutrality thing, whether or not they can enforce that or if they can get permission from Congress to enforce that and stuff like that, so... That'll be certainly interesting to watch how this develops, but at this point it looks like the FCC kind of overstepped its bounds. So I'm kind of curious to see how the new FCC chairman, Julius Janikowski, sees the whole situation and what and how he's going to run with it from here since Kevin Martin is no longer in the picture. And speaking of pictures... The new um, airport x-ray machines, like the backscatter machines or whatever, that have been all over the news lately, basically everything on everything since the whole Christmas bomber debacle. Um, well, apparently those things are based, are breaking child porn laws. Since they basically see through your clothes and see you naked, I, I guess... And I'm not sure... this The particular story that we're talking about here is it's breaking child porn laws in the UK. And I'm not real sure how that affects it, how, what, how the laws are here in the US as far as something like this goes. I would assume they're probably very similar. So basically, they're... At least while these the court cases for something like this is going on, anybody under 18 isn't going to be going through these machines because it could be breaking child porn laws and potentially making whoever's on the other side of the TSA screening machine a pedophile. So, I this to an extent, I, I suppose this makes a lot of sense, but if they aren't allowed to use this stuff, now you kind of know the age group that Al-Qaeda will be recruiting from if, that, if they're the ones that don't have to go through stuff like this. I don't know. I'm... I'm kind of hoping that they win against this suit. I mean, just because I, we really don't need little kids going through this kind of stuff. And then there's various stuff out there now saying that even like these backscatter machines and stuff like that, they'll still screw with your DNA and stuff. So personally, I'm hoping that when I travel up to Redmond here at the end of the month that I won't have to go through any of these machines. Personally, I, I believe last I heard you still have the option of um, volunteering for a pat-down rather than going through these machines, so if at all possible, I'll do that if I have to. But I certainly don't want to mess with these machines, if at all possible. Not that I, Again, not that I have anything to hide, it's just I don't think that these things have been studied thoroughly enough to know what um, any lasting health effects are and stuff like that. So, I'm going to try and avoid it. I recommend you do the same. At least until we know more about it, but I doubt that we're going to see much in the way of studies coming from it, considering they just ordered hundreds more to be installed all across the world. But, anyway, speaking of methods of transportation, apparently you 
subway systems can't ban violent video game ads. This story is coming out of Chicago. Apparently the Chicago Transit Authority has tried to ban violent video game ads like for Grand Theft Auto and stuff from being displayed at subway systems or on buses or on bus stations and stuff like that. But apparently a judge says, no, you can't do that because essentially these areas are public forums, which means free speech applies. So there's nothing they can really do about it. And and basically they were just kind of hoping to keep the violent video games that are M or adult-only rated away from the eyes of people who might be offended by it. And But apparently that this falls under free speech, as it should. So I would expect that we'll start seeing more of these violent video games ad in ads in public transportation systems. And, and apparently this isn't... I guess at one point there was a... Um, there was a whole thing between the transit system and Take-Two for Grand Theft Auto that I guess they had some sort of a um, whole legal issue with. But now this time it's the ESA, the which is the uh, Entertainment Software Association. They're the ones that basically... They're basically like the RIAA of the video game industry. So they're the ones that are actually fighting it this time. Which, I've always... I don't know, I, I when it comes to like the MPA, the RAAA and stuff, those I can't stand. ESA, on the other hand, sometimes I like them, sometimes I don't. It, it just kind of depends on what the issue is. But on an issue like this, I'm glad that they're standing up for the game developers. So this will be kind of interesting to see if there's any public reaction to some of the stuff that'll be up at the bus stations and subway terminals and stuff like that. But, speaking of video games, apparently the Nintendo Wii is getting Netflix. I guess this was kind of rumored last week when the Netflix CEO said the chances of of Wii support for Netflix is excellent. Well, apparently, I guess as of earlier today, and I didn't really pay much attention to it other than read the headline, but apparently as of this spring or whatever, Netflix streaming is going to be coming to the Wii. Which, I guess that's kind of nice. It, for me, it doesn't mean much of anything. I mean, I've got it on my PS3, and which I still have never watched. I just got the disc, and it's sitting here. I mainly watch everything on my Xbox 360, and I don't know, I can't imagine it being that wonderful on Netflix being that wonderful on a Wii. I mean, for basic standard def stuff, I'm sure it'll be fine. But considering the fact that the Wii is not high def or anything, I'm guessing that means that there won't be any high def content that'll be able to be streamed to the Wii with Netflix. I don't know that for sure, but I that's kind of what I would assume. So... With any luck, maybe this is kind of an indicator that we'll be seeing a Wii HD announced maybe at um, E3 or something like that this year. I don't know. Hopeful. I know there's always rumors going on about that, but at least now for families that don't have a 360 or whatever or don't have any kind of a um, computerized home entertainment system or whatever, they can or like a Roku box or whatever, they can now get Netflix through, or 
they will soon be able to get Netflix through their Wii. Which, have fun with that. I'll be sticking with my 360. Anyway, speaking of things that you can get that nobody will probably use a whole lot of, DirecTV is launching three dedicated 3D HD channels later on this year. One, Of course, for those that have been paying attention to the coverage in CES last week, there were two big things out at CES, e-readers and 3D televisions, which some it seemed to me like most of the interest was on the e-readers because the 3D TVs weren't all that wonderful. You still have to wear the glasses and stuff like that. And like some are like the passive shutter glasses, some are the active and and for the most part, from what I'm told, the experience still isn't all that great. And I don't know, it seems like they're putting a whole the T V manufacturers are putting a whole lot more money in and effort into the whole three D at home thing that I than I think people really care for. And most of the movies at movie theaters are still in 2D other than maybe like animated stuff or movies like Avatar or stuff like that. Most of them are still in 2D. People prefer 2D from what I can tell. I I know I prefer 2D. I mean, I've done various 3D movies in the past, which they were alright. They weren't great. I've done IMAX, which... IMAX, I like to an extent, but it's like you have to be in that one perfect seat in the center, and you can't tilt your head at all and whatever, otherwise you'll get some weird distortion and stuff. So, personally, I'm not a big fan of the whole 3D movement. I think it's just one of those gimmicks. As far as I'm concerned, I'm still waiting to get more HD channels on Comcast. And Give me more HD channels, that'll make me happy. Give me 3D channels, I still won't care. I don't know. That's just me. I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of curious to try out some of the NVIDIA 3D gaming technology stuff, although I'm going to be going with an ATI graphics card on my new computer, which I expect to order next week once all the parts come back in stock. But, I don't know. I, I've seen 3D stuff before. I've, th- I've seen, like, 3D computer monitors at LAN parties and stuff before, and the experience just isn't that good. I'm sure they've improved in the past couple of years, but... It it's still nothing that'll be on my Christmas list, that's for sure. And I think you're gonna have I think they're gonna have a hard time convincing people to get three D televisions. Um also back to the e reader thing I just wanted to mention a little bit. I'm I was actually kinda surprised at how many e readers and stuff were kinda unveiled at CES. Um you can go to pretty much any gadget block or blog or whatever and you can see kind of the CES or the e-readers that came out of CES like from Plastic Logic and stuff. Basically, they're providing a whole new um, experience on the e-readers compared to what you can get on like a Kindle or a Nook or a Sony e-reader or whatever. Basically, with the Kindle or the Sony e-reader or whatever, basically they have the functionality of an e-book reader and that's essentially it. I mean, yeah, they can do other things. They can, like with a Kindle, you can listen to audible books and you can do some light web browsing. You can listen to a little bit of music, although that's kind of a not real wonderful experience. And you can do a bunch of other things like that. But there's really nothing that has taken the experience itself to the next level, which is kind of what some of the things that I was seeing from 
from CES has done. This store, I know there was at least one company that was that's basically taking it and turning it in their ebook reader solution into a social experience, a store you can have like your own little book clubs and stuff like that. And there's others, like I believe, I think it's like the Q or something like that from Plastic Logic that is basically more made in terms of it's meant for like newspaper reading and stuff like that. And it allows like the content creators, like a USA Today or whatever, to create their own layout and stuff and give it like a real newspaper feel and kind of create their own um, environment and stuff on the e-reader and their own experience so that it's just kind of a better overall experience for the user instead of just flipping through like one article at a time like you do with the Kindle. And that's, to be honest, I really don't mind that too much on the Kindle, but it it could use a whole nother navigation um, method, which I know is coming as far as the device goes, but I'm not sure about like doing it through newspapers and stuff like that. But it'll, it's kind of interesting to see how that's how the whole e-reader market is kind of evolving. Um, I expect to see some kind of an answer to all these new movements out of Amazon probably this fall. I'd say probably maybe around the October time frame. I mean, they just basically last week announced or launched or whatever an international version of the Kindle DX. And then, of course, they had the Kindle 2 International a couple of months ago. So I really don't think we're going to see anything from them right away. I know they're working on some new firmwares and stuff that are going to improve navigation and stuff like that. And they just came out with one that I guess is still being pushed out over the air or is not quite yet pushed out over the air that brings like native PDF support and stuff to the Kindle too. But I think probably, like I said, around this fall we're going to see some sort of a new Kindle that's going to have some of these features that people have been wanting, maybe a touch screen or whatever, and they're going to have more of the social experience of it. I think you're going to be able to have um, like the book sharing stuff like the Nook does, but it's not going to have the limitations of the Nook where you can share a book with more than one person and share it more than once and stuff like that. So I'm kind of curious to see what's going to happen there, but I'm, I would bet money that we'll see something new and something big from Amazon and the ebook reader market, like maybe a Kindle 3 or something like that by the end of the year. So I'd say keep an eye out on that. But speaking of things keep that worth keeping an eye on, apparently something else that you should be watching is the Vlogosphere, which has apparently grown in the last, or since 2007, has grown 500%. Basically it went from 20,000 unique vlogs to 110,000 unique vlogs. Or I'm, I don't know if that's vlogs or vloggers. It doesn't really specify that. It says vlogs, but I've got to think it's talking about vloggers. But it's this is a story on TechCrunch, kind of like the state of the vlogosphere, talking about how YouTube is basically the primary place where people upload their vlogs, and they have like 36% of the market share, and whereas other sites like Blip TV come in at 14%, Vimeo at 9%, MySpace at 7%, Dailymotion at 3%, 13% of people use their own video sharing platforms like they're like on their own website they have their own like video hosting service platform things on their own WordPress sites like through a plugin or something like that what oddly didn't make the book what didn't make the figures was Facebook which kind of really surprises me but uh, there and of course there's a lot now that I've noticed and they point this out in the whole state of the vlogosphere thing 
is that a lot of vloggers are not only uploading it to their own sites, they're kind of, but they're also uploading it to a YouTube or they're opening, they're uploading it to multiple sites. They're using a service like TubeMogul, which will upload it to like a YouTube, a Vimeo, and pretty much all the other sites out there, which they've got their own little restrictions and stuff like that. And then there's like pay levels and stuff, which if you're a vlogger or whatever, or you've got some online videos, those that you're going to put up, that's an interesting service to look into. I've kind of looked at it myself, but there's things that I like about it, things that I don't like about it. But anyway, there's kind of some interesting things that they're showing in here as far as, like, they even mentioned the screen resolutions that most people actually consume these online videos in, um, which the most popular TV viewing for stuff like this is on a PS3 and a Wii. Gee, I can't imagine why, considering the fact that the Xbox 360 doesn't have a browser. And that that's kind of stupid to put in there. I mean, why are you... Everybody knows the 360 doesn't have a browser, so why say that it's even on the other two? I mean, that's kind of like stating the obvious. But anyway, um, it also has... There's information as far as, like, short-term videos being around a minute and 15 seconds, long-term videos being around 8 minutes and 50 seconds, somewhere around there. Speaking of which, I got my hands on a Zune HD yesterday, uh, thanks to the whole Microsoft Insider program that I'm in. I got a Zune HD yesterday, just a few minutes after I walked in the door, the UPS man dropped it by. I've had a little bit of time to play with it, and I'll have a complete review up, and I plan on doing a video uh, video review on the Global Geek News blog probably this weekend, or maybe before then, but probably it'll probably be this weekend, maybe the first day or two in next week, uh, just a kind of a complete video review of the Zune HD compared to the uh, first-gen Zune compared to, like, an iPod Touch. Let's just say I'm not that impressed. But, I mean, great audio, great video. Otherwise, uh, nah, I wouldn't go for it. But anyway, I'll talk about that more in the video review. Don't forget to check that out on the blog sometime in the next week or so. Um, speaking of interesting numbers, and uh, this isn't our last story. we got one more story. Um, Android phone demand is up 250% since I believe it was... November, I think, and the iPhone number, um, iPhone demand is actually down in relation to do it, in, in relation to it. So basically, in the past 90 days, or in the next 90 days, excuse me, people who plan to buy smartphones, 21% said they expect to purchase an Android phone, whether it's the Droid or the Nexus One or like a MyTouch 3G or whatever. Apparently. I, I, there's, of course, you can sit, make a case for a number of different reasons as to why this is. I, t- to be honest, I think it's mostly a case of droid marketing and maybe a little bit of the MyTouch 3G marketing, which I really didn't think is all, I really don't think either is all that wonderful. Or, I, I think like the droid o- ads are a bit on the odd side, so it kind of sends like a mixed message. But that, that's just me. I I did kind of... I have 
been predicting this for a while, for those that have been listening to old shows and stuff, that I think that there have been a number of people that have said that the Android is going to be the top, that it's going to top the iPhone or be the top smartphone or whatever by 2011, and I think that seeing this huge uptick in demand for it is an indication of that, and seeing that huge um, demand curve go up, I'm kind of starting to think that maybe it'll be a little bit sooner than a lot of people expect. I know a lot of people were thinking, oh, it's not going to be until 2013 or whatever. But with something like this, I think it's definitely going to go up. Uh, As far as, like, the Nexus 1 goes, I've actually kind of... I was a little bit surprised at how weak the sales are from... I saw something earlier today saying that sales for for the Nexus 1 were somewhat... I don't remember if it was... 20,000 units in the first day or in the first week. Either way, it's not that wonderful. I've I've heard that it's a decent phone. It's got some, I guess it's got some 3G issues, and it's extremely slick, so I've heard of a number of people um, accidentally dropping them and breaking them, store they're on like their third Nexus one already. I hear that support on it is pretty much non-existent. This is where there's a lot of irritated customers that are having issues with their Nexus One. So, I mean, if you're getting it from, uh, like, your local cell phone store, you're going to have a little bit more support. But in this case, as far as I know, I don't even know if you can order it off of the T-Mobile site. Last I knew, you could only order it off of Google. And if you're just getting it straight from Google, who do you call if you have a problem? Where do you take your phone if you have a problem? Especially if you buy an unlocked version that doesn't come with a T-Mobile contract. So, I mean, that that's one of those things that is going to be a little bit of a rough patch for the Nexus One and the whole idea of an official Google phone. But I'm kind of curious to see how that plays out here in the next couple of weeks as things get going. And in our final story, which, hey, we're actually going to be pretty close to on time with this episode, even though it's just me, since I threw in a whole bunch of other stories. But anyway, our final story, Microsoft has killed the upgrade versions of Office 2010, and that's actually a good thing. Um, For those of you that have ever had any experience with Microsoft products, whether it's been Office or Windows or whatever, there's always been an upgrade version and the full version. Well, in the interest of kind of cutting the number of versions down and making things more simple. For Office 2010, they're not going to do that. Whatever you have, it's going to be the full version. I mean, there's going to be different SKUs. There's still going to be like a home and office. There's still going to be like a starter, which is like the ad-supported version of Office that is basically just Word and Excel, which is meant to replace um, Microsoft Works. But as far as um, what you're getting, there's no upgrade. There's It's just the full product, so you don't have to worry about installing an old version so you can install the new version or making just going ahead and buying a full version so you don't have to mess with the hassle of having an old version on there and keeping track of your old disks and stuff like that. Now it's just all going to this full version thing. That said, there is, as convenient as that, as that is, there is still a little bit of a thing that just marketing terms and stuff are making it a little bit more confusing. It's nicer, but it's still more confusing. Basically, what they've gone to is um, 
each office SKU, whether it's like the professional version or the home and student version or whatever, each one is going to have what they call a full package product or a product key card. The full package product is basically the disks and everything that you need for Office 2010, and that's good for two licenses of the software, with the exception of the Home and Student version, which is actually and which is like the family pack or whatever, and that's a you get three licenses with that. And then with the product key card, that doesn't have a disk or anything with it. That is basically for if you have a demo on the machine, like say you buy a new computer and it's all automatically got an Office demo on it, or if you've downloaded like a demo from Microsoft web website, or if you've borrowed a friend's copy just of or a retail copy of Office 2010 just installed on your computer, this is basically just the um, product key to enter to activate the full version of the software. So since it's just the product key, no disk or anything, it is going to be a cheaper version. Uh, I believe you, there's a link in the store in, in the story in the um, show notes for the different pricing of what this can be like. Uh, actually, I just now brought it up. So for like the home and student version, if you get the box version, it's 149 But if you get the key card, which is just one license, I forgot to mention that, it's just one license, so you can put it on one computer and not two or three or whatever, that's going to run you 119 For like a home and business, the box version is 279 key card's 199 And the whole key card thing is actually kind of nice if you're buying a new computer, like I said, and you're it's just come with a demo on it and you just want to activate it. Or if you get a new computer or something like that and it comes with the Office 2010 Starter Edition, which, like I said, is basically the um, replacement for Microsoft Works, and you just want to upgrade that and get like a, the full version of Office, Office that, that's more convenient, and you're not having to worry about scratch disks or anything like that. So this... To an extent, I suppose this is a much nicer way to go. But anyway, back to the pricing. Um, for the standard SKU, of course, there's volume licensing, and then for the professional version, four ninety nine for the box, three fifty nine or three forty nine, excuse me, for the key card, professional academic, ninety nine dollars for the box price. Nothing available for the key card price, and then there's like professional plus, which is again that's volume licensing and stuff. So. This is certainly a different road for Microsoft to go down. I'm kind of... When I first saw this, I didn't really understand it at first, but the more I think about it, the more I like it. So I'm kind of curious to see how the average person views this. Because, I mean, the whole product key card and full package product, I think those are just kind of confusing terms that probably won't go over real well with the average consumer. But I'm kind of curious to see if that is going to be a real major point of confusion or if there's going to be um, enough uh, marketing stuff around where these is going to be sold in stores explaining, okay, with the full product you get two or three licenses compared to the product key card you get one license and stuff like that. So I'm kind of curious to see how that turns out when Office 2010 comes out later on. I believe it's... I think it's like in the summer, I believe. I'm not exactly sure. I want to say June, but I'm not real sure. I, it's been a while since I saw anything in relation to uh, ship date. But anyway, that's it for our 
stories. Don't forget we do have our tips of the week. First tip is how to temporarily protect your electronics with vacuums by vacuum sealing them. So I guess if you're worried about like your iPhone or whatever in a situation where it could get wet or whatever, you can vacuum seal it just to kind of protect it from moisture or bad weather or whatever. And of course, both of these um, both of these tips are coming from Lifehacker. The second one is the one that I personally find more interesting and useful, just because I really don't take my electronics in the in the situation where they could get ruined by water or weather or whatever. But the second tip is how to get free access to paywalled content with a simple Google hack. So if you ever go to like a wall a site like the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times or something like that and you don't want to have to deal with subscribing or maybe paying for a subscription or whatever and you don't want to have to go to bug me not and mess around and try and figure out which one of a dozen different logins still work and which ones have been disabled and whatever basically this um, simple Google hack you take the URL of whatever the um, content is supposed to be. Say you're going to a particular article that gives you the headline, but the content is disabled until you log in. Well, you basically take that URL, stick it into Google, and then when the Google result for it comes up, click it, and it'll automatically take you to the content without it being any kind of a um, having to log in or anything like that. So it's a nice little way to get around that if you're if you don't feel like registering and having another account or logging in or whatever it's just kind of another nice little way around that so if you're looking to so if you're one that uses like the Wall Street Journal or whatever if you're using a lot I'd say go ahead and get get an account it just makes things a little bit easier and one less step to have to go through but if it's something that you go to once a year once every six months something like that and you don't really want to mess with it, this is certainly a nice little option. I guess it kind of takes advantage of some kind of a registration bug or something like that in these kind of sites. So for as long as the bug is there, go for it. But anyway, those are our stories and our tips for this week, which, like I said, you can find all of them at globalgeeknews.com. And don't forget, you can check out the blog at globalgeeknews.com slash blog, which is where I will be putting up my review of the Zoom HD later on this week, and I'm sure I'll be sticking it up on my YouTube account, which I am PCNerd37 at YouTube, or on YouTube, I should say. Speaking of which, I'm also PCNerd37 on Twitter, so follow me there. And don't forget to follow Global Geek News on Twitter, which is just plain at Global Geek News. And don't, and even though Wesley's not here, I'll go ahead and plug him. Don't forget to follow at Wesley83 on Twitter. Um, if you have any comments or suggestions for the show, feel free to either leave them in the comments for the show, or you can always shoot me a message on Twitter. Like I said, if you're going to give me comments and stuff for the show, it'd probably be best to send them to at Global Geek News. So if you have any comments, suggestions, send them there. You can also email me if it's something that you don't want to necessarily share in public. And my email is pcnerd37 at globalgeeknews.com or you can do jeremybray at globalgeeknews.com. It all goes to the same email. I really don't care. Um, 
And that's pretty much it for this week. For those that would like to donate to the show, if you enjoy the show, want to show your support for the show, go to globalgeeknews.com. I believe it's slash donations or just on the Global Geek News page. There should be a button there for donations. Anything above $10 will get you mentioned. You can post whatever link you want there on the donations page so you can get yourself... A little bit, maybe a little bit higher Google ranking. You can get get yourself a little bit more traffic, stuff like that. Because I notice there are people that do check the donations page just to see what kind of people have donated and stuff. And anything over twenty five bucks, you get a special shout out on the show. And I'm still looking into anybody who donates an excess, a larger amount, like say fifty bucks, seventy five bucks, hundred bucks, something like that. Seeing if I can maybe do some Global Geek News merchandise, like some T shirts, some hats, some coffee mugs, stuff like that. But anyway, that's all just kind of coming in the future. But for now, please feel free to donate to the show. Right now, everything is, as far as expenses for the servers, the domains and stuff, which are constantly renewing one domain or the other, um, that all comes straight out of my pocket. I haven't really made much in the way of AdSense to really support the site at all. I'm still several hundred dollars in the hole myself because of it. So please feel free to donate to the site. We do do our best to provide great content, and if you can't donate, that's fine. All that we ask is that if you can't donate, tell your friends and your family and stuff about the show. Tell them, hey, here's this great show. You can actually, you can learn a lot. There's some great tips. You can find out what's going on in the world of media, entertainment, and technologies. Whatever. Just say, hey, just go to all your Twitter followers and say, hey, check out this podcast. Or email everybody on in your virtual Rolodex or whatever on your um, contacts. Or post something on uh, Facebook or whatever saying, hey, check out this podcast. And, or go on forums and say, hey, check out this podcast or whatever. That, that, that's all we can ask. We're always looking for a bigger audience and new people that are happy to contribute to the show. Like whenever I get somebody that wants to tri- contribute to the show or the blog or whatever, I'll... I'm, I, I've got a post that I've got to get up in the next day or so for an infographic as far as like college in America and stuff like that with some really interesting statistics on it. And there's been a number of posts in the past from various listeners and readers that have just been giving tips to other listeners and readers. I post those and everything, and they're always greatly appreciated. So if you want to help out in that way, you're more than welcome to as well. But just at least promote the show. Even if you do donate, still promote the show. Just because you donate doesn't mean you don't get off the hook. Doesn't mean you get off the hook. But anyway, that's all we have for this week. We'll be back at our regularly scheduled time next week. I'm sorry, this was a little, a couple of days late this week, but that is our show for this week. So for Global Geek News, I am Jeremy Bray, and we will see you next week. Later. <laughs>